Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, elder abuse, and medical malpractice. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. At first glance, emergency workers have a lot in common with race car drivers. Both regularly face high-pressure circumstances and frequent brushes with death and respond well to adrenaline. But there's one vital difference that separates the two. Emergency responders aren't in it for the thrill. At least, they're not supposed to be. But to 23-year-old Ben Gein, the breakneck pace of an emergency department offered irresistible high-stakes scenarios. Ben treated crises like a car race, waiting in the wings for a crash so that he might swoop in and save the day. However, when a lack of emergencies left him bored, Ben decided to take matters in his own hands. If disaster wouldn't come to his patients, he would manufacture it himself with the pointed end of his syringe. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to be offering Alastair some medical insight into our case of Ben Gein an emergency room nurse who knew all too well how to get his patients to calm down. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Parkar shows for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our one-part episode on Benjamin Gein, an English emergency nurse. Over the course of three months in the early 2000s, Ben's thrill-seeking crime spree killed two of his patients and endangered over a dozen more. Today, we'll track how Ben's early dreams of a high-intensity career led him to ER nursing. Then, we'll examine his swift attacks and subsequent downfall. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. As long as Ben Gein could remember, he'd yearned for action. Born on October 18, 1980 in Oxfordshire, England, Ben was always drawn toward the rush of a challenge. 
He loved solving high-intensity puzzles, and his parents noticed that he was happiest when under pressure. So it came as no surprise when teenage Ben opted to pursue a career in nursing. There's no pressure like literal lives on the line, and he immediately set himself to chasing emergencies. Not long after he began attending Buckinghamshire Chilterns University College in 1999, 18-year-old Ben joined a medical branch of the UK's Territorial Army, today known as the Army Reserves. He didn't see combat, but the trainings brought an exciting reprieve from his schoolwork. Ben had to think on his feet amid the unthinkable Driven by the excitement, he eventually achieved the rank of lieutenant while balancing the work with his course schedule. However, Ben cut his time in the army short when he finally qualified for what he really wanted. Work in a hospital. In 2002, 21-year-old Ben completed the first stage of his nursing education. At this point, he didn't have a degree but his three years of study qualified him to start working while he finished coursework. Even better, his girlfriend, Megan Crabb, was a fellow nursing hopeful, and now it seemed they'd be able to work in the real world together. In October 2002, Ben secured a position as a care assistant at Horton General Hospital in Oxfordshire, the same facility that hired Megan. Care assistants play a vital role in the functioning of any hospital. Their job dictates helping registered nurses and other healthcare professionals with any tasks or responsibilities they may be qualified to carry out. Much of the work involves observing and recording patient information, things like blood pressure, temperature, heart rate, and their overall condition. They also help patients communicate or correspond with their caretakers and loved ones. Depending on the hospital setting, they may even perform clinical tasks like running EKGs or venipuncture. Many care assistants are fresh out of nursing school, and many are nursing hopefuls working to reinforce their skill set to position themselves for future program opportunities. It's a great job for anyone with a passion for nursing ambitions. But Ben had higher aspirations immediately. He applied for an emergency nursing position, even though he had no field experience. And to his delight, Horton General didn't turn him down. Instead, the administration saw something in the student. He didn't have the best grades, but his military training was an asset. He also seemed more eager than other applicants. So the following month, they offered him a deal. If he could complete his nursing certifications by the following spring, they would grant him the position. In the meantime, he'd keep working as a care assistant. Ben readily agreed. The terms seemed fair enough, and he liked the fact that the hospital preemptively granted him a badge to wear once he changed positions. Ben put it on right away, misleading staff about his role. This didn't go unnoticed, and Ben received a formal reprimand. Less than a month into his time at Horton General, he'd brought his ethics into doubt. The slap on the wrist did little to humble him. He clearly felt overqualified for the desk work of being a care assistant and only stuck with it as a means to an end. Finally, in April 2003, Ben completed his qualifications and government registration one month before Horton's deadline. At long last, he could sport his nurse badge with pride. 
he quickly began carrying out his new duties. Being an emergency care responder or ER nurse carries an entirely separate set of responsibilities than a care assistant. The differences are really night and day. The major distinction is the environment, and an accident and emergency department nurse, like Ben, would have been dealing with life and death situations. Nurses in these settings have to make quick decisions under pressure and must ensure their patients with a laser-focused attentiveness. They need to understand how to treat traumatic and critical injuries, how to properly clean wounds, and how to carry out minor medical procedures. They also need to know how to deal with allergic reactions, how to draw blood, and how to administer intravenous medications. Given Ben's prior position, the learning curve here would have been huge. However, emergency medicine isn't for the faint of heart, so when someone's eager, their desire is usually fostered. Ben was all too ready to put his freshly minted nursing degree to use. Horton General saw around 35,000 patients each year in its emergency room alone. The constant hustle and bustle kept him on his toes at all times, exactly where he wanted to be. But due to his inexperience, Ben was expected to answer to the more senior nurses, something that grated on him. To show off his proficiency, Ben took on overtime and sought more difficult patient cases. This rubbed some of his co-workers the wrong way. Many thought that a more experienced or educated nurse would be better suited to some of the responsibilities Ben took on. But nothing good came of the silent and growing judgment of Ben and his arrogant choices. As he continued to grow more sure of his skills, it seems he decided he'd have to prove himself to win the favor of his colleagues, to show them what he was truly capable of. One day, during his first year on the job, 23-year-old Ben strolled into the hospital's medical lockup and plucked a syringe and two vials. One contained vecuronium, the other midazolam. Neither had been prescribed to Ben's patients. Vecuronium and midazolam are drugs used by anesthesiologists and may actually be used together under extremely close monitoring in order to facilitate certain medical procedures. While vecuronium is a neuromuscular blocker meant to keep someone's body still and relaxed during surgery, midazolam is a benzodiazepine which can be used prior to surgery to induce drowsiness, ease anxiety, and help keep a patient sedated. This drug combination might be employed for an operation requiring intubation, for example, because it's crucial to keep a patient's breathing and throat muscles relaxed while also ensuring their sedation. However, there's a major potential for danger in using these medications together, and this is because both suppress respiratory function. While the vecuronium deregulates the functioning of the breathing muscles, the midazolam slows down the central nervous system, depressing respiration and heart rate. Without extreme care, this drug pairing could easily lead to respiratory failure and death. When he got home that evening, Ben hid his new acquisitions from his girlfriend. He'd use them when the time came. He just needed to wait for the right moment. Coming up, Ben puts his toxic plan into action. 
It's been said that art is in the eye of the beholder. But what about greed or chaos? Hi, it's Richard from the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries. This September, join us as we comb through the clues of some of the greatest art mysteries of all time. The Lost Da Vinci, the fake Rothko, the real identity of Banksy. If you've never listened to Unexplained Mysteries before, there's no better time to dive in than with this fantastic five-part special. You can also find hundreds of other mystifying stories and new episodes each week by following Unexplained Mysteries free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Months into his role as emergency nurse at Horton General Hospital, 23-year-old emergency nurse Ben Gein stole a syringe and drugs from one of the supply closets. We don't know his exact process or how long he sat on his plan, but on December 4th, 2003, he brought his syringe along with the vecuronium amidazolam into work for his regular shift. While Ben did his usual work, setting up beds and preparing intravenous medication, on this particular day, he was also scanning the ward carefully. Ben wanted a patient who appeared anxious, disoriented, or mentally unwell, whose story could easily be dismissed if he made a mistake. At around two o'clock that afternoon, Ben was assigned to David Long, a 53-year-old suffering from a potential lithium overdose. Lithium typically treats mental health conditions, so David was just who Ben was looking for. When the tending doctor determined David was on the road to recovery, he left the room. Now, alone with the patient, Ben stealthily withdrew his needle and pushed it into David's IV. In seconds, David began to struggle for breath. He went into respiratory arrest, no longer able to get enough oxygen into his body. Ben knew exactly what to do next. This was his moment to shine. Resuming his guise as an upstanding nurse, Ben called the doctor for help. Although this doctor had no way of knowing that David Long received a dangerous combination of drugs, his respiratory arrest would have been quite apparent. When a patient's unable to breathe, it's crucial for an ER doctor to first ensure that there's nothing blocking the airway, like food, for example, or even dentures. In the absence of any blockage, the patient would need supplemental oxygen administered through nasal cannulas or a face mask. If this didn't replenish the patient's blood oxygen level, intubation or artificial respiration would be necessary until a clear diagnosis could be established. A reliable prognosis in this situation would ultimately require the use of things like imaging, cardiac monitoring, and laboratory testing. As a nurse, Ben would have been expected to assist the doctor throughout this whole process step by step. As such, he would have had a pretty firm grasp on how this scenario should have been handled. Though the doctor had no idea what caused the sudden downturn, he managed to bring David back from the brink. With Ben's help, of course. Just as planned, Ben had engineered a crisis for himself to solve in full view of his colleagues. 
finally, he had something to brag about. A story of his quick thinking in a time of crisis. But the rush was fleeting. Any commotion the rescue had earned him quickly died away. Just five days later, Ben decided to strike again. On December 9th, a 77-year-old man was admitted to the accident and emergency department due to a serious chest infection. Once again, Ben set up his patient's bed, then stood by as a doctor checked on the patient before leaving them alone. Like before, Ben swiftly injected the patient's IV with the combination of vecuronium and midazolam. A respiratory arrest followed. Riding another adrenaline high, Ben alerted the doctor, and together they resolved their second unexplained respiratory arrest of that week. Responding to such high-risk situations seemed to sate something deeper in Ben, because he kept on doing it. Horton's A&E ward typically saw one or two sudden respiratory arrests a month, if that. Over the course of December, Ben single-handedly raised that average, causing a total of six near-fatal incidents. But as he continued on his rampage, his confidence in his life-saving powers got the better of him. The day before New Year's Eve 2003, Ben was assigned to John Thorburn, a 73-year-old man who suffered from serious lung issues, including asthma and emphysema. Thorburn was already experiencing heavy chest pains by the time he was placed in Ben's care, which made Ben's injection all the more dangerous. In no time, John Thorburn let out a raspy wheeze and then fell silent. Thorburn could have easily died after receiving one of Ben's injections. As we discussed earlier, muscle relaxants and heavy sedating drugs like benzodiazepines can interact to create highly dangerous and life-threatening respiratory depression. On their own, each of these medications has the potential to critically impair breathing, but it's important to reiterate that combining them can lethally intensify this side effect. This is another example of a synergistic drug interaction, something we've talked about in prior episodes. Of course, complications depend on the dosing of each drug and any other possible confounding factors. When it comes to a patient like John Thorburn, his asthma and emphysema would have made Ben's cocktail particularly risky. This is because these conditions weaken pulmonary function by inhibiting adequate oxygen flow into the lung's smaller airways. Given his underlying health, it would be a miracle if Thorburn managed to pull through. By the time doctors managed to return oxygen to Thorburn's lungs, he had already fallen into a deep coma. He didn't wake up for several days. This was the first time one of his attacks caused lasting damage, yet these consequences didn't seem to shake Ben. Instead, he seemed to take pride in having rescued the man, bragging to one doctor, there's always a resuscitation when I'm on duty. Ben didn't include that he was the cause, and he intended to keep up the pattern. Less than a week later, on January 2nd, 2004, Ben lethally injected, and then resuscitated an elderly woman. Four days after that, a 66-year-old patient named Anthony Bateman was admitted to the hospital with a litany of serious health conditions. 
Among them, arthritis, asthma, and a poor heart. When the doctor left him in Ben's care, she instructed Ben to set up a saline drip and take a blood sample. Ben did as he was told, attaching an IV tube to Anthony's arm. But it seems he made sure to add some medication of his own. Seconds later, Anthony stopped breathing and his face turned blue. Another nurse ran to help revive him. As she attempted to rescue the man, she heard Ben mutter, Oh no, here we go again. It sounded more crude than earnest. By the time the doctor returned, Anthony was on death's door. He slipped into a coma and never woke up. After poisoning at least seven people, nurse Ben Geen had claimed his first life. The news of Anthony Bateman's death sent shockwaves through the ward. As we've mentioned, sudden respiratory attacks are uncommon but not unheard of. For a patient to die from one was another story. To the surprise of his colleagues, Ben wasn't very broken up about the loss. And while a certain level of detachment is normal for first responders, the other emergency nurses seemed to find Ben's behavior eerie. They might have even begun to wonder who Ben was beneath his overconfident exterior. But even if his colleagues were watching him with more scrutiny than before, Ben didn't move more carefully in the wake of that first death. Just one day later, he struck again. Over the next two weeks, Ben imperiled and rescued two more patients. Then, early in the morning of January 21st, Horton General admitted 75-year-old David Ongley. Just three weeks prior, he'd received a triple bypass. Since then, an incision from the heart surgery had grown infected. When Ben strode into the A&E at 7 that morning, charged with Onley's care, he had a plan. As soon as Ben got alone with Onley, he injected the IV bag with his handy syringe. When nearby emergency staff heard Ben's voice echo down the hall, their hearts must have sunk in their chests. By now, they knew the sound of the young nurses shouting could only mean one thing. Another patient had suddenly stopped breathing. It took a long, agonizing hour to stabilize David Onley, but the relief was short-lived. He experienced a serious heart attack as a result of the emergency. He survived this as well, only to suffer a second heart attack that afternoon. Doctors ordered a ventilator for Onley, but it did little good. He passed away the next day. Onley was at least the 12th patient to suffer mysterious respiratory issues since the beginning of December and the second to die by Ben's hand. By January's end, three more patients experienced the same sudden respiratory arrest. Fortunately, they all pulled through. But Ben's colleagues only had more reason to gossip. Behind his back, they began calling him Ben Allett, after Beverly Allett, the Lincolnshire nurse who poisoned 13 babies in 1991. For now, it was just a poignant joke. 
but his co-workers were closer to the truth than they realized. Coming up, Ben's heroics are finally discovered as pure villainy. Now, back to the story. By the end of January 2004, 23-year-old nurse Ben Gein had recklessly endangered at least 12 patients. After injecting them with medications that caused respiratory arrests, he'd call an emergency code and leap to the rescue, acting the hero. Most of the time. Two patients had died during his scheme, and lately, other nurses suspected Ben wasn't quite the hero he made himself out to be. Some even gave him the nickname Ben Allett after a known medical murderer. Whether or not Ben knew about this nickname, he didn't slow his attacks. On February 5th, 2004, two months into his spree, Ben injected a 67-year-old woman who made a full recovery. Then Ben zeroed in on yet another patient, Timothy Stubbs, that evening. 42-year-old Stubbs was admitted to the emergency ward for severe stomach pain. His lungs, on the other hand, were in perfect health, as was his blood pressure. But Ben told him it was dangerously high. Ben assured his patient he was giving him medication to normalize it, but actually shot his lethal concoction of vecuronium and midazolam into Stubbs' IV. After a minute or so, Stubbs entered a state of extreme relaxation. Ready to sleep, he moved to adjust his hospital gown, but he struggled to perform this simple action. His arm seemed impossibly heavy. Then he realized how difficult it was to breathe. Seconds later, it became impossible. Huge beads of sweat appeared on his cold and clammy face, which turned bluer by the second, the last thing he saw was a team of doctors rushing around him. A faraway voice shouted, Keep the head up! It's important to keep a patient's head elevated in a situation like this so their trachea or windpipe stays open. When someone's unresponsive, their muscles become relaxed, including those in the throat. This, combined with gravity, can cause the tongue to fall back and block the airway, so this recovery position ensures that the tongue falls forward. It also prevents fluids like blood or vomit from getting trapped in the windpipe. As a young doctor took charge, she saw Nurse Ben pick up a breathing tube. She directed him to stop. Ben didn't. Against orders, he shoved the tube down Stubbs' throat. The patient immediately gagged, and Ben withdrew it, realizing he'd made a serious mistake. This was a serious breach of protocol. Any doctor in this scenario would have seen Ben's actions as horrifically negligent and, frankly, borderline crazy. Not only was Ben unqualified to make this call as a nurse, which violated hospital policy, but he also put Stubbs in a lot more danger. Intubating someone who doesn't need it can dangerously destabilize the appropriate balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide that one needs to survive. 
The excess supplemental oxygen here can actually cause oxygen toxicity or oxygen poisoning, which can damage lung tissue and even cause death. Aside from this, shoving an endotracheal tube down someone's throat, as Ben did, without extreme caution and preparation, can lacerate tissue or further restrict an already compromised airway. Ben was completely out of line here, and his cavalier move, without consent from the presiding doctor, must have been very shocking. Though the doctor was likely furious about Ben's negligence, she had no choice but to continue working with him to save Stubbs. Luckily, Timothy Stubbs survived. Ben's reputation didn't. Stubbs's respiratory arrest raised a new kind of suspicion in the emergency ward. It was the second in a single day. Within hours, doctors gathered, wondering how this could have happened. A few nurses came along too, and soon enough, there was a crowd of about 30 emergency staff, each coming to the same dark conclusion. Stubbs's stomach pain should not have led to his sudden breathing crisis. After some discussion, the hospital staff confronted a nightmarish thought. One of their own may have caused these respiratory arrests. The administration was informed and a formal investigation was launched, the kind that could only be done in secret. As Ben woke up for work the following day, Friday, February 6th, he had no idea that his bosses were poring over patient files in search of a criminal. As fate would have it, he didn't show up, claiming he felt ill. So instead of at work, suspicion found him at home. As Ben napped, his girlfriend Megan washed his scrubs. She discovered a heavily used syringe in his pants pocket, filled with a yellowish fluid. Allegedly, when Ben woke up from his nap, Megan confronted him. A nurse herself, she knew this wasn't normal. He played it down, likely assuring her he'd return it to the hospital on Monday morning when he had his next shift. We don't know if Megan believed him, but she stayed quiet for now. Back at the hospital, Ben's superiors worked through the weekend, trying to find the source of the strange attacks. First, they tested the urine of the latest victim, Timothy Stubbs. As they waited for the results, they identified 17 other cases of unexplained respiratory attacks, all since the beginning of December, less than three months ago. It's possible that some hospital staffers already suspected Ben, based on gossip and his unfortunate nickname. But in the records, they found something far more damning. Ben Geen had been working during every one of the 18 sudden respiratory attacks. Horrified, hospital administrators called the police. On the morning of Monday, February 9th, 2004, 23-year-old Ben Geen pulled on his scrubs like every day, along with his fleece jacket. He made sure to grab his syringe on the way out. Once he arrived at the hospital, a squad car appeared in his rearview mirror. When the officer approached and asked Ben to step out of the vehicle, he did his best to remain calm. But then, the officer searched Ben 
and noticed his fleece was wet. The officer rifled through the pockets and found the syringe. It had been drained. Literally dripping with guilt, Ben was arrested on the spot. Although Ben denied everything, detectives quickly tested the drugs found on the fleece, which came up positive for vecuronium and midazolam. By this time, Timothy Stubbs's urine test had come back as well. He had those exact same drugs in his system. And if Ben thought he'd have any way of defending himself from the other murder allegations, the syringe put that to rest too. It clearly had been used a lot. This brought another disturbing implication. Keeping the syringe in his pocket, Ben was constantly exposing it to germs and bacteria. He may not have ever cleaned it or changed the needle, putting even those patients who survived his attacks at risk of infection. Another example of Ben's complete disregard for those he was supposed to help. Under questioning, Ben admitted to stealing vecuronium and midazolam, but insisted they were just for personal use and that he was bringing the syringe back to the hospital to dispose of it. As for the correlation between his work schedule and 18 peculiar respiratory emergencies, Ben chalked it up to bad luck. He told police, I seem to have a jinx. It just seems that every shift of mine, I get more sick patients than other people. The authorities didn't buy it. Ben was immediately placed on leave by the hospital and all his nursing qualifications were suspended. Over the next year, Horton General saw zero unexplained respiratory arrests and Ben Geen was sent to trial. In February 2006, Ben's colleagues, surviving victims and their loved ones testified against him. Some witnesses for the prosecution argued that Ben showed traits of narcissism, which would explain his careless, cocky and self-serving nature, but no formal diagnoses were given. After a nine-week trial, Ben was found guilty of the two murders and sentenced to life in prison with a mandatory 30 years before the possibility of parole. The judge called the crimes a terrible betrayal. Though none of Ben's former co-workers could speak positively to his morals, as Ben filed appeals over the years, he did find a community who did. Around 2008, a barrister named Mark McDonald, founder of a charity that seeks to exonerate innocent convicts, took the case pro bono and recruited some of Britain's top statisticians. The number crunchers compared Ben's case to other unlikely disasters, such as three planes crashing over the course of eight days, or people who have won the lottery twice in a row. They argued that 18 people randomly experiencing unprompted respiratory crises under Ben's care was unlikely, sure, but not impossible. Perhaps Ben was no murderer at all, but merely the unluckiest man in the world. The court ultimately decided that no amount of theorizing could stand up to the hard, physical evidence tying Ben to the murders. They denied the appeal. Today, 
A group of Ben's friends, family, and concerned citizens maintain his innocence. The team has continued to appeal his case over the years, as recently as July 2020. But unless they manage to explain away the used syringe and medication in his pocket, Ben Gein will remain behind bars until 2036 at the earliest. The case of Ben Gein is deeply unfortunate and made even more troubling by the carelessness he exhibited toward his patients in service of himself. Having been in the medical field for so long, I can say it's not completely uncommon to run into practitioners who care far more about their own bottom lines than the well-being of their patients. While this is one thing, it's even more disturbing to run into doctors like Ben, who seem to only be there to prove just how much smarter and better he was than everyone else. It's a hazardous kind of narcissism for patients and fellow doctors alike to deal with. However, as horrifying as it is to consider someone like Ben Gein working as a nurse, it's important to remember that the vast majority of ER staff are there for you, not themselves. Throughout his brief yet eventful medical career, Ben Gein had every opportunity to do the right thing. But Ben's first, biggest mistake may have come before he even arrived at Horton General, when he was still a lieutenant in the Territorial Army. There, he'd received training that prepared him for the exciting life he'd always wanted. Perhaps he could have focused on his military career, treating combat victims. However, a waiting syringe might have looked tempting even then, on a day where emergencies were particularly slow. The irony is, there are few places with more routine than a prison cell. For Ben, every new day is a slow one, and he'll never be seen as a hero again. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Benjamin Gein, among the many sources we used, we found the Daily Mail article, Killer Nurse, The Victims, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Eric Stankey, edited by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. (laughs) 